My name is Nate Mickle. You're listening to Mickles and Dimes Layer 2, where every interview is dedicated to the simple, the practical, and the underappreciated. Juliana Schroeder is a chaired professor at Cal Berkeley where she teaches negotiation and leadership and conducts research on mind perception. She earned an undergraduate degree from the University of Virginia in psychology and economics with a minor in Italian literature and then earned three more degrees from the University of Chicago, a master's in social psychology, a master's in business administration, and a PhD in psychology and business. I hope you enjoy learning from Juliana Schroeder because I certainly did. Juliana, I'm excited to talk with you today. I think the first time we met was at a psychology conference, psychology technology conference several years ago. And then later you agreed to serve on my dissertation committee, which I am always grateful to you for that. So thanks so much for your kindness and for taking a few minutes to share some thoughts today. Thank you for having me. It's great to see you again, Nate. Yeah, I do love this podcast because it gives me a good excuse to reach out to old friends and colleagues. So it's great to catch up with you again. Uh, You've had a great career as a researcher and professor at Berkeley. And as you think back on your academic career, are there two to three simple, practical, underappreciated lessons you've learned that you'd most like to pass forward? Yes, um, I can think of a couple. Okay, so the first one I'm thinking of is that um, people aren't social enough for their own well-being, that the idea that people are what we call under social. And so there's this huge literature that suggests that um, our close social relationships are Um, what we call an important aspect of what makes us healthy, wealthy, and happy. Um, But there's a whole class of people with whom and situations in which socializing um, is avoided. And those are particularly true in the cases of um, engaging with strangers or outgroup members or when there are unclear social norms. Um, And what we find kind of over and over again in our research is that people chronically underestimate how much others will appreciate and desire our social gestures as well as our pro-social gestures. So let me kind of give you some examples. Um, this work kind of started with a paper on talking to strangers in um, on public transportation in particular. We've expanded this to other contexts like standing in line at grocery stores or being in waiting rooms um, and, and other contexts like that. But you can think about lots of situations in which you're surrounded by strangers and you might not have much else that's really very useful to be doing. You know, a lot of times on public transportation, you might have, you know, a little bit of work with you to do, or you have your phone with you, but um, perhaps you're not going to be that particularly productive. And so you could like reach out and talk to someone, but typically people don't. And in fact, they what we find is that they think that um, it would be a pretty unpleasant experience to have a conversation with a stranger in most of these contexts. Um, and it would also make them unproductive um, and it just would reduce their overall well-being. And so we've run a bunch of field experiments now where we actually randomly assign people to talk to a stranger or um, just sit in solitude or just do what they would normally do um, on different forms of public transportation. We've done it on trains and buses and airplanes. And what we find is that actually people surprisingly have a pretty pleasant experience, more pleasant than they expected and more pleasant than sitting in solitude or doing what they would normally do, which is sitting in solitude usually. Um, and, um, And they have a relatively productive experience too in some contexts. 
Um, and so that's, you know, one case in which we think, okay, people might be leaving value on the table in terms of they actually could engage more with others and they're choosing not to, even though it could make them a little bit happier. And so that's, that's just purely having a conversation. And some of those are very short conversations that people have when we randomly assign them to do it, they might just be talking for, you know, two, two to five minutes, sort of saying hi to you, uh, Nate. Um, some, some people do talk for a lot longer, like people might talk for an entire train ride an hour, right? And so some people are having these kind of tangible outcomes where they actually make a connection and they exchange phone numbers and they meet the other person later, but other people are just having this kind of friendly social engagement. Um, but we also find this to be the case in a lot of pro-social gestures as well. So for example, we have a paper that just came out on like giving constructive feedback, where we find that people underestimate how much um, potential recipients want to hear their constructive feedback and how much they'll appreciate it and, and be grateful for it. And that's um, a trade-off that we find often in which basically people are um, thinking too much about the short-term costs, especially to themselves, as in uh, it might be a little uncomfortable for me to give you, Nate, some constructive feedback or some unsolicited advice or even something that's obviously pro-social, like a compliment or showing you gratitude that just might feel a little uncomfortable or awkward. I'm not exactly sure how to do it. And so I, I choose not to. Um, and I also underestimate how much you're going to want that. But if I were to do that in as experiments where we force people to actually do this again, you can see this theme in my research. <laughs> um, what we find is that, yeah, people actually recognize that it, it can have value and particularly long-term value for the recipient. So if I am going to tell you something um, that you might, you know, really want to hear, like you're pronouncing the client's name wrong, Nate, you know, again, it might feel uncomfortable for me in the moment to do that. And I think, oh, maybe he doesn't really want to hear that. But actually, that's super useful feedback. And that's going to be really good for your career. Um, and so, you know, what we find is that really people sort of should give that type of feedback. They should give the compliment. They should show gratitude, um, both for the other person, for the recipient, as well as even for their own um, their own value and their own relationship closeness with the recipient. So in all those ways, we sort of see that people are, are leaving social value on the table is the way that I refer to it. And we've, we've done some investigation of the mechanisms for why this is. Um, and then I'll pause for you to react, Nate. Um, so there are kind of three reasons in particular. So one is that um, what we call different construals, which is that as the potential giver or the actor here, I tend to be thinking a lot about competence and my competence in particular. So am I going to do this the right way? Am I going to be able to deliver that compliment in a way that it's really going to land well with you, Nate? Am I going to be able to deliver that feedback in a way that you really appreciate? Am I going to be able to make a conversation with you that's actually interesting and useful to you? Right. But as it turns out that the recipients don't care that much about that, it doesn't seem to kind of be on their minds from their perspective you reach out and then they think, oh, that's kind of a nice gesture. So they kind of appreciate your friendly intent, even if you're not sort of giving the very perfectly worded compliment, right? And so it turns out that the recipients are kind of focused more on the warmth side of it and the givers are focused on the competence side and that can lead to some of these mispredictions. Another reason why we see people not being social, even when they could actually benefit from it or the other person can benefit from it, is that people seem to have kind of the wrong conception in their mind about the extent to which the counterpart will be responsive to them. And so um, in a lot of these cases, there's just a lot of uncertainty. Like you don't know the other person that well, let's say. Like let's say you're talking to a stranger, you don't know the other person at all. And so you really don't know how they're gonna respond. 
And so in theory, I could go up to you, Nate, and say, hey, what's up? Um, I see you're sitting next to me. Like, what do you think about what's going on with the weather these days or something? I could just say something pretty innocuous. And you could respond in any way. Like, in theory, you could, like, I don't know, punch me in the face. Like, that could happen in theory. And so it, when, when people are predicting about and they're simulating what's going to happen, they kind of think about all of the options as being sort of similarly likely, sort of from this on this huge spectrum, like total uncertainty. But of course, in practice, in reality, the options, the reaction of the other person is pretty constrained because engagement is reciprocal and dependent. So if I smile at you and I'm friendly towards you, it's actually your it's much more likely just because of social norms that you're probably going to be somewhat friendly back. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, you, in theory, you could punch me in the face, but that's very unlikely in like most contexts that we're in. And because again, interaction is reciprocal and dependent. So it seems like basically people are pretty off and sort of the, the level of uncertainty kind of makes their predictions about what might happen um, off in, in these kind of systematic ways. And then the final thing that matters here is what we call like asymmetric learning, which is that, um, being under social in particular is um, is a, a wicked environment in the Robin Hogarth sense of the term, which is that if if I think that it might not be very pleasant to give you that compliment or to uh, to talk with you as a stranger, um, then I will probably never engage in that behavior. I probably won't do it. And if I never do it, then I never learn that it actually could be good or it could be more pleasant than I expected. Um, and then if I never learn, then of course, I'm never going to update. Right. And so it basically so it's a wicked environment in the sense that people don't get a lot of feedback. They don't know the counterfactual of like what would have happened if they had engaged. And this is also why we think it seems the problem seems to be more about under sociality than something like over sociality. You could imagine that there are contexts and there, these do exist in which people are like stuck in like super hyper social contexts, like the MBA students that come into the program at Haas the first like couple of weeks, they're just like networking all the time. And I think of that as like a hyper social context that can be like very exhausting for some people. Um, and, uh, you know, that's also sort of a problem. But in those contexts, you recognize it, you can understand what the counterfactual is, okay, I could be alone. And you can kind of get yourself out of that situation. Right. Whereas in these under social contexts where you don't even try in the first place, you often don't really recognize that you could have acted in a different way. And so you kind of never get out of that. And so that becomes a more pervasive bias um, that, that people don't recognize as much. OK, so I'll pause there and get your reactions, Nate. Oh, I just think this is so interesting. And a couple of thoughts. One, I'm grateful to my wife who forces me to get out of the house and do activities with the kids because I, I'm one of these people that feels like I can be happy just staying home, reading a book, interacting with my wife and kids and never leave the house. But I'm, I'm sure I'm one of these people who I'm, I'm misestimating uh, the effect that that would have on me because my wife does make me be more social. Not that I'm like super introverted, but I do think, uh, you know, hearing this research and learning from you, this is something that I am going to try to adopt this rule of like, just be more social. When I have a chance to say hi, I have a chance to strike up a conversation on the plane or at the supermarket. Uh, it's a chance for me to improve my well-being and a chance to improve others' well-being. And then I also want to set this example for my kids because the cell phone is like, you know, one of the most amazing inventions ever. And I think it's also, you know, contributing to us not communicating with each other. Uh, we order so many things online. We don't have to go to the stores. We don't have to get out. And I just really appreciate learning this research from you. And uh, I'm going to try to model this behavior for my kids so that I, I don't leave some of this happiness on the table. 
Yeah, I, th I love that. I think that's exactly right. That what we're really referring to here are kind of moments in the margin where you're like, eh, there's not much for me to be doing. And like, I could talk to someone, but I could just stay home. And so in those moments, you might say, okay, like your tendency is going to be to kind of do what feels like the easy thing, which is just kind of being your status yeah. quo and stay home. And so you might want to push yourself a little bit and try try to get out. Now we're not saying like be social all the time. Some people m mistake that and they hear, okay, like what we're telling is just, you know, be really social all the time. No, that's not really what we're saying. It's yeah. more just like on the margin, on average, what we find kind of over and over again is that people have this tendency to move towards the under social instead of kind of being um, as kind of maximally kind of social for their own value. And so I think, I think that's right, that you could sort of just look at kind of these little instances in your life and your everyday life where you could just gain a little bit more kind of social value. And then you also mentioned the phone, which is really interesting. I mean, I agree with you, like phones, these kind of smartphones that we have are like amazing technologies. Um, and they allow us to um, connect with loved ones really easily and really quickly. Um, but it's really interesting. And this was actually another point I was going to make later, how I think it's been kind of changing the ways in which we engage into ways that are a little bit less um, effective and beneficial for us. So it, it makes it easier to text people and be asynchronous. An asynchronous connection is just not as powerful or as beneficial as synchronous connection. Text-based, not as good as voice-based. Um, and then also I think it can remove us from our offline interactions. So we wrote this paper about kind of the kind of challenge and the tension between online and offline engagement where I think you can have some value in, in online engagement, but it can sometimes interfere with your offline engagement. So there's this, like Liz Dunn has some really nice work where, you know, you go to a, you go to a dinner now and everyone at the table pulls out their phones and no yeah. one's engaging with each other. And so, you know, maybe you're each like talking with a loved one on your phone, but I would argue you're doing it in probably like an asynchronous text-based way for the most part. And you actually could have more value by like putting down your phone and talking to those who are actually around you in person. And so that's now it's preventing you from capitalizing on that form of social engagement. Um, so, so even though it's, it's sort of a paradox that I think is like a theme in all my research, which is that we're in, we're living in this time in the world where we're more objectively more connected than we've ever been with everybody else, like our kind of, those of you who are on Twitter, you know, you can sort of see everyone. It's like the kind of first like way to have these global asynchronous conversations with anyone, just like random strangers. Um, but the paradox of course, is that we, even though while we're objectively more connected, we're, we're subjectively feeling more disconnected than ever before. And that I think is because the ways in which we're connecting has changed. And a lot of these kind of what's been called social media, which I think is actually not very social, right. um, is actually impeding our social lives. So interesting. Just to even hear you talk about the synchronous versus asynchronous differences. And when we text people, it's so easy to feel like or kind of we can confuse ourselves or maybe kind of lie to ourselves and, and think this is like a synchronous conversation. But it's not. It's asynchronous, and it leads to a different outcome than a synchronous conversation. Uh, I just love this research. I think it's so interesting, especially coming out of COVID, and we've seen the effects that uh, you know people not socializing has had on people. Um, as we wrap up, are there any final lessons you'd like to share? And and I just love these lessons so far. 
Thanks. Yeah, I guess let me continue on that theme of because I think one thing that's been very useful for in terms of social media from a scientific perspective is that it's really forced us to reevaluate, you know, what are the key aspects of a conversation that makes it kind of go well? What does a good conversation really look like? And I think of a good conversation as one in which, you know, the well-being of the parties are enhanced or it's, you know, productive and um, engaging in some ways. And, And it's interesting because I think you know, when social media was first being designed, um, we might have said, oh, yeah, like this should work. Like you can kind of you can kind of create, even though the medium is very different, you can kind of create the elements of a conversation that should work in that context. Um, But now that we now it's really forced us to kind of be more critical and evaluating what are the elements of a conversation that matter. And it turns out that I think it, it got a lot of things wrong. And so I can kind of tell you what I think it got wrong. So one is that I think it turns out that nonverbal cues and in particular voice is really important in conversation because voice is like this amazing tool that humans have that conveys so much information. So of course you're getting the semantic content while I'm talking, like language itself is just an amazing thing. Just the, just the words that I'm using, but the, the fact that you're hearing it in my own voice with my own emphasis and my own pacing and everything just gives you so much like richer insight. And it's not just giving you insight into like what it is that I'm thinking, although it is, it's also like giving you all these cues that, hey, I'm like a thoughtful, emotional person. I'm a human <laughs> that has these like real like beliefs and thoughts that like there's actual substance behind the words. And that's something that like there's, we have a tendency to kind of default into what I call a form of dehumanization, which is kind of like thinking about others as these like two dimensional shadow figures. And we need things like the voice of the other person to remind us that like, hey, like to trigger us into a a humanizing state and to think like, okay, Nate is like a real like person that is actually has these kind of, yeah, this mind that I can actually read and I need the voice to have that. So, so it turns out, yeah, those cues are important. Another thing is synchronicity. So like, it's just that if, if, if we're asynchronous, I communicate with you and then you communicate a long time later, which is we're living in a very asynchronous world these days. There's like so much miscommunication that can happen, right? What I said an hour ago might not even be true anymore, right? It's like being like really closely aligned in time is so important for like working out sophisticated nuances. So like if we're going to have like any sort of conflict (laughs) where we have different perspectives on things or trying to actually like coordinate on something that's potentially complicated, we have to be in a a very synchronous medium. And that's that's really clear now. And then the other thing is that all of social, a lot of social media happens in these very public forums where anyone can get involved. And in a way, like that seems great, right? It's like, oh, global conversation. But what that does is it's two things. One, it gives the, it's the presence of the audience, which, and when you have an audience present, that um, means that people are much more likely to talk past each other and not really talk meaningfully to each other. So they're basically speaking to their audience, like Mm -hmm. their in-group, as opposed to having kind of like deep, meaningful, intimate conversations. And then the other thing is it allows bad actors to get involved. So like if you have one bad actor who just like wants to disrupt and just sort of like, you know, make a troll, basically you call them a troll, like make some like negative comments on a bunch of threads, they could just do, they could spend one hour of their time making a negative comment on hundreds and hundreds of threads and just derailing all of those conversations in a way that's really like horrific. And, and all you need is one bad actor out of like thousands and thousands of good actors. And so that's, you know, so those are some of the things that kind of are, are wrong with social media. And so I guess the kind of second lesson I would leave you with is that 
we could be smarter in the ways that we choose to use the conversational structures and platforms that are available to us, including the medium. So like I would encourage people if they think that they disagree with someone or they think they have to work out something complicated, it's like actually get on the phone and talk to them or be in person, um, you know, and be in a synchronous medium as opposed to being in like a an asynchronous text-based medium. We've just gotten so used to text-based communication. And, you know, I think of it in terms of like the alien test. If the aliens came down and were like um, looking at us, watching us communicate and they see, okay, you can communicate asynchronously uh, through text or you can have this much richer environment where it's synchronous and you're seeing people and seeing all the cues and hearing them. Like, why did, why, why would people settle for the one dimensional, like the, the super low information yet we do it. So that's just so interesting that we're so prone to engage in this and we're missing out on so much. Yeah. Maybe that's another theme, which is that like, it feels a little bit easier, right? It just, it feels, I mean, I certainly feel the appeal myself of just like texting you as opposed to talking to you. Um, it also, you know, I think that people, we have a little bit of preliminary evidence that suggests that people sometimes think that the other person would prefer the asynchronous medium. So it's like, I'm giving you a break, Nate, by giving you a little extra time to respond. Um, but they're really not thinking about the long-term kind of proposition of like what value gets lost when you're in that medium. Well, you've shared so much great information and uh, we're running short on time. Any last words, any last things you'd like to share before we wrap up? Um, no, I, I guess I would just like to leave the audience with, um, you know, try try to be more social and be smarter in the ways that you engage in conversation and and use different communication platforms that are available to you. Well, Juliana, thanks so much for sharing your time. Um, I don't know if you're writing a book on this topic yet, but if you're not, I would love to read it because that, there's so much there that you, I know you're just kind of hitting the surface on the things you've talked about. So do you have a book in the works? Because I do want to read it. A very, very early stage. It's called Reading People. I don't have a date for when it may become available, but um, I will definitely let you know, Nate. Okay. Obviously this, I didn't know this, you know, sometimes these, these uh, interviews, you know, people might kind of set it up like this, but I can just tell there's so much information here. Can't wait till it comes out. I look forward to reading it. So thanks so much for coming on today, Juliana. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mickles and Dimes. Juliana Schroeder is a global expert on how technology use is shaping our perceptions of others, and I look forward to trying to apply the lessons she taught today. First, most of us tend to be under-social. We underestimate how much we can benefit others and ourselves by being more social on the margins. When we're concerned about being social for fear of looking foolish, or that people won't reciprocate our social gestures, we can remember that people tend to not judge our gestures. They just appreciate the kindness, and they also tend to reciprocate in kind. When we have a chance to talk to strangers, give a compliment, express gratitude, or provide constructive feedback, we can enhance the well-being of ourselves and others by choosing to be more social. Second, we can be smarter with how we communicate. We're objectively more connected than we've ever been, yet subjectively feeling more disconnected than ever, in large part because of how we communicate. Asynchronous, text-based communication cannot and should not entirely replace the richness of face-to-face synchronous communication. Cell phones and computers have forever changed how we communicate. However, Juliana reminds us that we are prone to use these devices in ways that don't maximize our well-being. By taking the time to connect face-to-face with others, whether strangers or loved ones, we can improve the well-being of ourselves and others. It's a simple idea. Please take it seriously.